You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so we're thinking about faith and politics today, again tonight. Hope you can join us again. It's a tough topic. I don't have to tell you how divisive it is at this moment. I trust you're feeling it on social media, maybe at work or school, maybe in your family. There's been some pretty strong arguments among my own extended family showing up on, 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 our, on our text messages back and forth with one another. Even we feel some of that divisiveness, we feel the, the charge of the moment in our churches. Even as Christian brothers and sisters go after one another, and, and, and it shouldn't be that way, should it? Well, how do, we, how do we approach this topic? Again, we're gonna do that starting now, and then we'll do it again this evening. Let me start with a quote I saw a couple of weeks ago from somebody named James, and James is arguing for President Trump's re-election bid. He says this, this is our last stand, folks, and here's your last defender. <clears throat> if they take him down, America's gone forever. Vote for Donald Trump like your life depends on it. James, in other words, perceives the other side to be an existential threat to him and America. Okay, existential threat. That's just a fancy way of saying a threat against our existence. America's gone forever. Vote for Trump as if your life depends on it. He sees an existential against his existence threat. And of course, if we went to the other side of the aisle, we'd see the same kinds of warnings and tweets. Vote against Trump, as if your life depends on it. Well, if we start looking at the slogans of the right or the left, we hear the same things. Think of the, think of the phrase, black lives matter. What, what is, what's behind that? What's being said in that? Well, it communicates that people of color feel a existential threat as if their lives don't matter. So another, another elder of another church, in fact, in your area, was speaking to me a couple of weeks ago. We were, I was speaking to the leadership of his church about these very kinds of things, and he, he said to me afterwards, he said, Jonathan, I, I feel like the president's, and I wrote this down, I feel, feel like the president's rhetoric incites and empowers racist actions that have genuine potential to cause physical harm to my body and my family. He's Hispanic. Will my parents be safe from physical harm when they go grocery shopping? Will someone see my father is dangerous because he's an immigrant? Okay, in short, friends, whether you're on the right or the left, you are perhaps feeling some level of existential threat against yourself, your party, your people, your country. And then what's the posture that we adopt when we feel these kinds of threats? Well, we, we adopt a posture of fear, and resentment, rage. I mean, after all, if, if somebody's a threat against you, you fear that, you back up, but then you kind of get your wherewithal to come out and rage against that threat. That's fairly typical, right? And I think a lot of us, as we look out, and maybe in our own hearts, we feel some of that fear and resentment and rage. So what should we do? What's the response? 
Well, I think one way to respond, to, to respond is sort of the kind of cool-headed, moderate middle, to sort of say tut-tut to both sides. You're all being hysterical. You're making too big a deal of this. You know, it's not, not really a threat. Just kind of stick with the program. The thing is, if you are an unborn child, the threat against you is very literal, very real. And if you talk to my Hispanic friend, elder, elder pastor friend, he too would say, the threat I feel and experience is very real. After all, politics is the domain of existential threats. It is the domain of establishing peace and order and safety. That's what politics is about. Such fears are not entirely misplaced. Okay, again, so what should we do? Well, I think when we open up Psalm 2, which is uh, my text for this morning, we're going to find the ability to respond to these things. What does Psalm 2 say? Does Psalm 2 say, the threats aren't real, don't sweat it? And that's not what it says. What Psalm 2 does, first of all, is it gives us a pair of x-ray vision glasses to sort of see behind the threats and see behind the promises and the problems called out by the parties and the politicians of the moment. It helps us to see behind the curtain of the, the political landscape to see what's really going on. And what we're going to find when we, when we look behind the curtain, when we, when we put on the x-ray glasses from the Lord's perspective... Again, it's not that the existential threats that we face and experience aren't real. Rather, we learn that there's an even scarier threat. And that's the eternal threat of the Lord God Almighty. Which puts all of the very real existential threats that we feel into perspective. Turn there if you haven't already. We're going to be looking at Psalm 2. Acts 13 and 4 tell us that this is a psalm of David. David, of course, was no stranger to existential threats. Uh, our sister just read it for us. And we know that Psalm 2 is a cosmic picture of the nations and God's plan for all the nations around the globe. It's the most explicit messianic psalm in the Psalter, pointing towards the Messiah. And what we find, I think, is it divides fairly easily into four sections, each of, what, each of which gives us a lesson. Here's lesson number one. This is from verses one to three. Every nation rebels against the Lord, and it's vain. Lesson one. Every nation rebels against the Lord, and it's vain. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It's a rhetorical question. Like, why would you guys do this? Right? Don't you realize how vain this is? You have all your rage, but it's vain. And notice how it takes in all the earth. It says the nations, plural, and the peoples, plural. It's not just Israel, it's the nations of the earth. And notice also in these first few verses how the psalmist focuses his indictment politically. Kings, rulers, Right? Rage against the Lord. It's, it's Jewish and Gentile. It's Herod and Pontius Pilate raging against the Lord. And of course, friends, in a democracy, who are the kings? Who are the rulers? Was it not finally the voters, the people? 
the voters of the Lord, uh, the, the voters of the earth, it seems, rage against the Lord. And it's not just the Lord, if we keep reading it, it rage against the Lord and against his anointed. In the Hebrew, against his Mashiach, his Messiah. The nations, the voters of the earth, rage against the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's what the psalm is telling us. All people rage against the Lord and against Jesus Christ. And, and again, notice how political this is. The, the objection it raises here is not, you know, I have a, a religious objection to this idea of Christianity. You know, you claim to be the only way. That, that, that's not what it says. It's not, it's not a philosophical, epistemological objection. How can you really know Christianity is true and that your Bible is true? And, you know, there's different ways of knowing and different people. That's, that's not the objection here. Look at verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. Jesus claims to be king, but I want to be king. I'm going to cast that off. And the words here uh, of bonds refer to kind of like the, the, the yoke that are placed on an oxen. God, God's rule, Christ's rule to the nation is this binding, oppressive, enslaving rule. That's how it's perceived by the nations. The politics of the nation oppose King Jesus and his rule. Why? Well, because the nations have other gods, other things they Worship. If you're a note taker, write this down. Our worship determines our politics. Our worship determines our politics. Our governments serve our God or gods. Our governments serve their gods. That's true of the voter voting, the judge judging, the president presiding. Every government, since God gave governments to the world, have served their gods. That's what they do. Now, if this morning you're listening and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, you do not call yourself a, a follower of Christ, what, what is Psalm 2 in these first few verses saying to you? Well, friend, it's saying that you and I both, in our natural fallen selves, rage against the Lord and against his Anointed In our natural fallen selves, we rage against the Lord Jesus Christ because he comes in, he claims to be king, and we don't want him to be king. We want to be king of our own lives. And therefore, we and the nations rage against him. China rages against him. India rages against him. Russia, Kenya, the United States rages against the Lord and against his anointed. The Democrats rage against him. The Republicans rage against him. The independents, third-party voters, Green Party, rage against him. Now, I'm not saying that the volume levels between those nations and the parties are the same. Sometimes the volume is louder. Sometimes it's lower. Think of Pharaoh at the time of Joseph. 
Pharaoh protecting and sheltering God's people. And then a few hundred years later, think of Pharaoh at the time of Moses devouring God's people. There are better and worse nations, better and worse leaders, better and worse governments and parties, according to scripture. In fact, a useful exercise for you this afternoon would be go through scripture with a friend and say, okay, what, what does the Bible define as a better or worse government? That's a good exercise. That's not the point of Psalm 2 in these first few Verses. Psalm 2 in these first few verses have a leveling effect. The nations, the peoples, the kings, their rulers rage against the Lord and against Jesus Christ. They indict all of us. It's universal. God has declared Jesus to be king. We don't like it. If you're listening as a Christian, as a member of Stone Gate Church, what's, what's the lesson of these first few verses for you? Well, it's that your faith, friend, is a political threat. Your faith is a political threat. People talk about the culture wars. What are they actually? Well, they're actually wars of religion. That's the effect of Jesus showing up and saying, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Every nation conspires against King Jesus. That's the biggest political divide in the Bible. It's not left versus right, globalist versus nationalist, city versus country. It's for Jesus, against Jesus. That's the biggest divide in the Bible. Christ, anti-Christ. The fact that Jesus is king means... He has total say over all of our lives. He cares how we spend our day, how we spend our money, who we sleep with, what we do with our job, what we do when we walk into the ballot box, what we do on the play field, what we do with our children on the way home and driving to and from church and how we speak to them and how we love our spouses. Of course, the nations rage against Jesus and everybody associated with Jesus, representing Jesus, cast off their cords, burst their bonds. I know. I want to do my own thing. And friends, it's always been this way. Let's go back to the first, second, third century. Why did the Romans throw Christians to the lions or light them on fire? So they didn't like their religion? Well, a little more precisely, it's because the Romans thought their prosperity, economically, politically, militarily, depended on the favor of the Romans' God, gods. And so they would offer sacrifice to the Romans' God who would then give favor to Rome. These Christians, however, would not make sacrifices to the gods. That risked the favor of the gods. And so we oppose these Christians. You oppose our God, you oppose my prosperity, I oppose you. Rage against you. See how that works? America, too, has many gods. The God of material comfort, the God of progress, the God of my rights, the God of self-definition, the God of new technology, the God of sex, the God of safety, and my skin color. You oppose my gods, you oppose me. I'm going to oppose you. I'm going to rage against you. Because I like my way of life. I like my gods and the favor they give me. So don't oppose my gods. Don't oppose my worship. Or I'm coming after you. Cancel you. Whatever. Friends, I trust there's many patriots here this morning. 
I consider myself a patriot, an American patriot. But if you would most love America, you will oppose its false gods. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. An enemy multiplies kisses. That's point one. The nations rage against the Lord in its vain. That brings us to point two. God has no and tolerates no challengers. Point two, God has no and tolerates no challengers. Verse four, he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Was the Lord threatened by Pharaoh? Think of the plagues. Was the Lord threatened by the Philistines? Think of David and his puny little rocks. Was the Lord threatened by mighty Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon? Nations behold me and tremble. Think of Nebuchadnezzar cursed on his hands and knees, crawling around eating grass like a cow. God's like, are you kidding? When I read verses four to six, I, I, I can't help but think of uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, and that, that one episode where Jill Pohl wakes up, finds herself incredibly thirsty, sees a stream, starts going towards the stream, but, but, but behold, there's this, this mighty lion in her path. It lay with its head raised and its two four paws out in front of it. She knew at once that it had seen her for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyhow, she couldn't have moved if she had tried and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if she could only be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you are thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. And she realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It didn't make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that, without noticing it, she had come a step closer. Do you eat girls? she said. I have swallowed girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, 
cities, and realms, said the lion. It didn't say it as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen its stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever seen. Friends, God is awesome. He is this mighty, majestic, swallowing up boys and girls, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms, lion, of which this lion is just a faint glimpse, whiff, blurry shadow. He sits in the heavens and laughs. He beholds the parties and the politicians and the TV nightly news which would whip us into fear with derision. He says to the mightiest empires in this world, I will terrify you in my fury. Think of Daniel emerging from a lion's den. Talk, Talk about a very real existential threat. Daniel coming up out of the lion's den saying, O King Darius, live forever. How how could he honor this this pagan king like that? Doesn't he know that Darius is is a threat, an existential threat to him? O King, live forever? What's going on? Well, of course, Daniel knows that the real threat is not these lions. The real threat is the lion. And, and the lion holds King Darius in derision. And his fury will come upon King Darius insofar as King Darius opposes him. And Daniel can rest in that. What is it you're fearing, Christian? A few months ago, the National Religious Affairs Administration of China released a set of regulations on the management of religious groups. Here's Article 17. Religious organizations must spread the principles and policies of the Chinese Communist Party. Rodney, this is your job description, okay? According to the Chinese Communist Party, let me take some notes. Religious organizations must spread the principles and policies of the Chinese Communist Party. They must educate religious personnel and religious citizens. That's you guys. Your job for these guys must educate religious personnel and religious citizens to support the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, support the socialist system, adhere to and follow the path of socialism with Chinese characteristics. The Chinese Communist Party insists on total submission. It insists on worship. We are the greatest thing you are to fear. You must worship us, right? And the existential threat of the Chinese Communist Party is very real. 
They will imprison you. They will take your life. They will monitor you and watch you through cameras and your phone around the nation. It is a real existential threat. Okay, so explain to me why. Just a few weeks ago, my friend Victor, who's a pastor in China, emailed me and a few other guys and said, hey, listen, I've just been imprisoned uh, for the last 11 days. Now we're out. Our church uh, had reached that kind of magical number of 200. When the police start paying attention, the police won't pay attention when your house, illegal house churches is you know, 10, 20, 40, 50, 100, 150. But when you reach about the 200 mark, the police see the threat and they start paying attention and they show up. And so Victor's like, yep, they show it up. They scattered us and they put me and the four other pastors, elders of the church in prison. Now we're out and we're trying to figure out what should we do? Should we continue meeting as all 200 of us or should we divide up into five groups of 40 each and put one of the elders over each one of those separate gatherings? And I'm thinking, well, you can't divide up. I mean, I just stand to the radar, of course. Whereas Victor's like, no, I kind of think we might do the 200. And I'm like, okay. How could Victor have that, uh, that kind of courage? Doesn't he know the existential threat of the Chinese Communist Party? Yeah, he knows it more than I do. Firsthand, for 11 days, sitting in detention. And yet, Victor knows the lion. He knows that he sits in heaven and laughs and holds in derision the Chinese Communist Party and will terrify them in his fury and his wrath. European and American judges more and more have been making decisions to limit the Christian freedom of Christians to live and worship according to Scripture. And friends, we should oppose that. Governments exist in part to provide a, a platform, a safety and freedom for, for the people of God to pursue God and for, for the nations to find their way to him. Paul says in Acts 17, we'll think about that more this evening. So am I telling you to disengage from politics? Not at all in, in engage. But as we do, we do so in the freedom of the knowledge that the one in heaven is a lion. And he laughs. He holds in derision the very ones that our nation around us is going to rage about and whip themselves into this fury and fear. Well, that brings us to a third thing I want us to learn from Psalm 2, specifically from verses 7 to 9. God has granted all rule and dominion to his son. God has granted all rule and dominion to his son. Verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The king is declared to be God's son, which is how God referred to the occupants of David's throne, eventually pointed to the occupant, the son of David's throne. Then verse eight, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God commissions this king to make his rule and his dominion visible on earth among the nations. And didn't Jesus tell us to go to all nations making disciples? And isn't the Son's rule becoming visible today, right here, as you gather to hear instructions from the King? O King, what would you teach us? And as you, Stonegate Church, bow 
and song and listening before this king? Isn't the rule of the sun becoming evident in my church plant up in Cheverly, Maryland at Cheverly Baptist Church? And isn't the sun's rule becoming visible and evident and real all across this country and around the world among the nations? Verse 9 You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The book of Revelation quotes this verse three times in reference to Christ. Uh, Chapter 19, for instance, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. It's because of this promise of Christ's dreadful judgment, friends, this assurance that we don't need to live as saints in fear, resentment, rage. That's not becoming of us. When we live that way, when we sound just like our non-Christian neighbors, it sounds as if we don't know the one that we claim to serve. So here we are on a Sunday morning claiming to serve him, praise him, but how do we sound all week when we sound just like them? Don't you know the lion? Friends, you know the lion. And there's nothing more that CNN and Fox News wants to do than to whip you up, as I said, into this fury. The principalities and powers saying, we are the ones to fear. We want your worship. And friends, we cannot give it to them. The Son possesses all rule, all judgment. And we represent Him. When all the world wants to talk about politics as the most important thing, sometimes the most powerful thing you and I can say is, hey, let's talk about something else. There's more important stuff going on. This is important, but you know there's actually more important stuff going on? Now again, am I saying, friends, disengage from politics? I am not saying that. In fact, let's, there, there's three wrong paths for a Christian when it comes to engaging in politics. The first wrong path is disengagement. Call call this the Jonah option. Don't want to go along with those nasty Ninevites. I'm heading out to Tarshish. See ya. Destruction's coming on you. Don't really care. Wrong path number one. Wrong path number two, call it capitulation. Going along with the world, right? Uh, The German Evangelical Lutheran Church of 1933, established in 1933 to align itself with the the policies of the Nazi party, that was capitulation. A subtler example would be how liberal Christianity accommodates the sexual ethic of our own day. Call, Call this the Judas option. I got a bag of silver here, I like that. A little worldly success and position, I like that. So we got the Jonah option, we got the Judas option, a third wrong path, call it utopianism or worldliness. And I think probably this is the biggest threat for members of an evangelical church. You give, what what this is, is you give earthly political outcomes, a vote on a law, a vote on an election, on a Supreme Court nomination, an outsized importance. As if this next election is the most important thing in the world. Vote this way, that way, as if your life depended on it. So we're pursuing good things, just things, righteous things, but we forget that our political judgments are prone to error and that 
that Supreme Court justice doesn't actually vote like we thought he would vote or that president go in the direction that we thought he would go. Only the judgments of God in Scripture are perfect and endure forever. So on this path, we adopt a worldly strategy or tone. We quietly in our hearts, sometimes loudly on social media, despise those who disagree with us, even fellow Christians. Along the way, of course, we tell the world that we're really just a branch of this party or that party. We've been co-opted. Call this the Peter picking up the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane option. Peter, what are you doing? That's not the way this is going to get done. Well, that brings us to our last point. What is the right way? That brings us to our last point. Fourth and finally, we learn from Psalm 2 to take refuge in the Son and represent Him. That's verses 10 to 12. Take refuge in the Son and represent Him. Verse 10 asks us to represent the Son. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Be warned, Donald Trump and Donald Trump voters. Be warned, Joe Biden, Joe Biden voters. Be warned, Chief Justice John Roberts. Be warned, Mr. Mayor. Be warned, President of the PTA. Be warned, voters of the earth. Christ is coming with judgment. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. Verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling, saint. In fact, verse 12. Listen to how audacious this is. Kiss the sun. That's bold. Donald Trump, Joe Biden, kiss the sun. Voters of each, kiss the sun. Honor him. Pay homage to him. Lest he be angry and you perish. Honor the sun. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can't take refuge from him. You can only take refuge in him, said one commentator. Okay, so, so the wrong way of, of politics, I said, is disengagement, the Jonah option, capitulation, worldliness, the Judas option, the give everything in this world an outsized, important worldliness, utopian, of the Peter pick up the sword in the garden option. What is the right way of Christian engagement in the public square? How should we view the public square according to these verses? Two things, two words, refuge, represent. Refuge, we take refuge in him and we then represent him. This is precisely what the inspired commentary on these texts tell us. If you have a Bible, you can see this in Acts chapter 4. It quotes these verses. Acts, Peter and John, they're, they're standing there before the Sanhedrin. They say, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And, and then notice where they located that rage. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, Jew and Gentile, met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed against the Lord and his anointed. The rage of the nations, 
was seen most clearly, most visibly in the cross of Christ, in the crucifixion of the anointed one, Jesus. Yet then notice what Peter and John ask for next. They ask for the ability to represent this one with great boldness. They're, they're praying there before the Sanhedrin. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Then we read, and after they prayed, the place where they're meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Take refuge in and then represent. Did, did, did you catch all of this? Remember, remember at the beginning, I said that the nations and their kings and their voters rage against the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Well, Peter and John tell us that very, very clearly in their commentary on this text. And we see that most clearly the first time Jesus came to declare his kingship, when he came in the most unexpected way as a suffering servant. So here he is, Mark chapter 4, repent and believe, the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, so Jesus is showing up to establish himself as king, and then we finally move to that final week where he comes in and they're putting down palm branches, and then we finally get to that, that final evening, and Jesus asks for a crown, and they give him a crown of thorns. And then he offers his shoulders for a, a, a royal garment. And so they beat and whip and bruise his shoulders and then put on the royal garment. And then he says, lift me up on my throne. And so they do. They, they lift him up on the, the throne of the cross. And there on the cross, he defeats as this mighty warrior king the greatest enemies of humanity. Our Oh, not, not Pharaoh, not Philistines, not Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, the greatest, the evil one, and our own sin. Paying the penalty for our own sin in his body on the cross. And then defeating the consequence of our sin by rising from the grave. And he said, all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples. Teach them who the King of Kings is and the Lord of Lords is and who the Savior is and who it is they are most to fear. Not just existentially, but eternally. Right? So, friend, are you on the political left and you most fear the right? Or are you on the right and you most fear the left? I'm not going to downplay either threat and say they aren't real. Yet I will say there is a far greater threat. And that is the threat of the lion against your sin and mine faced with eternal condemnation from that. And the good news of Christianity is that Jesus stepped forward and he endured the existential threat of Herod and Pontius Pilate against his own body. And not only that, he took on himself the eternal threat of God himself against sin and death. And friends, that done, what else do we have to fear? 
Really, you're going to fear what you hear on Fox News or CNN compared to that? Okay, again, to my, my non-Christian friend who, who's, who's listening or, or, or watching this morning, what do we learn? Well, we learn that everything in our lives is subject to the scrutiny and judgment of God, the one who created you and me. And we've raged against him, especially in our politics, says Psalm 2. And the good news of Christianity is that this king we read about in Psalm 2 paid the penalty for our rage. And now he says, be warned, be wise. But he also says, rejoice in trembling. Blessed are you if you take refuge in me. And members of Stonegate Church, Christians listening, what's the message for this? Well, it reminds us that we are citizens of heaven. First and foremost, before we are citizens of the United States or any other nation, before we are members of this or that party, it tells us that the nation, nations, will rage against the Lord, but the one in heaven laughs. He is a lion who will swallow up girls and boys, men and women, cities, realms, emperors, kings. It tells us to take refuge in him tells us to represent him. It reminds us there is no other stream. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we have feared the forces and figures of this world. We have feared and worshiped at the altar of parties and politicians, giving them our greatest loyalty, letting them determine our hearts in opposition to others, in opposition even to our fellow saints. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for not acknowledging that you are the one to be feared. That you are a lion, but you're a good lion who protects his people. And draws us close if we would only repent and belong to you. And so, Father, as we, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, of this coming political season, as the news channels and the colleagues and the fellow students around us rage, help us to know that not only you are the lion, but you are the good shepherd. That you lead us besides green pastures and still waters. Help us to pursue justice. Help us to pursue righteousness, but help us to do that taking refuge in you and representing you in all things, not giving way to fear. We pray all of this in the Son's name. Amen.